The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Would you come by your spirit and speak to us through your word? And would you grant us the ears to hear what you say? Would you give us eyes to see the unseen? Would you give us hearts to believe and rejoice in it? God, would you do this supernatural work that only you can do? Father, we don't want to remain as we are. We want to be as he is. So come by your word. Have your way with us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand to your feet, please. One more time. We're going to be in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. We, as you know, we have hit pause on our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Ephesians for this Advent season. So this morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, from verse 5 down through chapter 3, verse 1. As you can tell, I get very ambitious around the Christmas season about how much text I can cover. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, down through 3, verse 1. This is the inspired and holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. We must receive it as such. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we speak. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So as I attempted to make clear last week, Christology matters. You all know what theology is. That's two words coming together. Theos meaning God, logos meaning word. And so theology is God words. The words you say, the words you think, the words you teach about God. Christology is Christ words. What do we say? What do we think? What do we believe about Christ? Last week, we came together and we looked at John's second letter, 2 John, verse 7 through 11. It tells us all that is at stake in our Christology, all that is at stake when it comes to the thoughts that we have, the words that we speak, the beliefs that we carry about Christ. He said this, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked words. The thoughts you have, the words that you speak, the things that you teach, the beliefs that you hold about Christ matter. They matter a lot. Because to tamper with the nature or the person or the works of Christ is to fundamentally alter the gospel itself. And, and we know that it isn't just this one very narrow error that can cause a man to be without God. It isn't just failing to understand that truly the Lagos, the word, the eternal son has come in the flesh. There's a number of times in scriptures where we find ourselves warned about holding on to things that are not true. Think about what the apostle Paul says in the letter to the Galatians, Galatians 1, 8 through 9. He says, but if even we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. When you monkey with who Jesus is, when you start building a Jesus after your own image, when your Christology doesn't match up with who he's revealed himself to be, you end up with an altogether different gospel. A gospel that has not been handed down to us from the apostles, an apostle, a, a gospel that can only lead you damned. So again, I say Christology matters. You remember probably that our last Advent season, we then also hit pause on our study of the book of Ephesians crazy. We've gone two Christmases still in Ephesians. But last Christmas we hit pause for the Advent season and we considered the, the promises and, and the pictures of the coming of Christ. 
Remember, we went all the way back into eternity past, remembering that this thing which has happened, it didn't begin in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It began in heaven before the foundations of the earth. And we looked at these pictures and these promises, and we considered all those who awaited the coming of Christ. Do you remember as we looked at Simeon and Anna and saw a picture of what a true Old Testament saint looks like? As they saw beyond the pictures and beyond the shadows, and they looked forward to the coming substance the consolation and the redemption of Israel. So last year it was all about the anticipation of the advent, the anticipation of the coming. This advent season, I've challenged you to consider who is this one who has come? Not just the advent, but the incarnation. What does it mean for the Lagos, for the word, for the eternal son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity to come? To take upon himself the fullness of humanity, a human body, human mind, human will, human emotions, external flesh that you could see, that you could touch, that you could smell, but a rational soul as well. Everything that it means to be man. What does it mean for this Lagos, the, the divine person as fully God? Never diminishing, never letting loose, never reducing, never relinquishing any of what it means to be God. And yet taking upon himself absolutely everything, save and except sin, that it means to be a man. And still in some way coming not as two people, not as a man called Jesus of Nazareth with the Logos casting out a human soul, not as the divine Lagos coming and giving the appearance of a body or a, or a phantom body of some sorts. Truly, one person, but with two natures. Fully man and fully God. And these two natures without separation and at the same time without blending or confusion or mixing. So your homework for this week is to look up and to consider the Chalcedonian definition from 451. In the fifth century, the church came together and they tr tried to figure out as those best theological minds were able, how do, we, how do we defend ourselves? How do we protect ourselves from going into the ditches? Because whenever we try to consider something that is so otherworldly as this, so far above anything that, that our minds would have ever dreamed up, a, a thing like this that is unlike anything, has no parallel in all creation and because God is not going to show us the how in this lifetime knowing how easy it is for men to fall into heresy with regards to this issue right here they came together and they said let us put together a different definition and primarily what you'll find is that definition is a but a bunch of no 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 not like that that's what we do isn't it we come to the trinity one God in three persons, and then people start coming up with all types of analogy. It's like, it's like water and ice and vapor. And so then they come along, no, 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 not like that. It was like a three-leaf three leaf clover. No, 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 not like that. It's like a man who is both a father and a son and an uncle. Not like that. They put these boundaries around it and never get to anything that amounts to a settling of our mind on what has actually happened. But they keep us between the lines. But I would encourage you to go and, and study this and consider what these men, we really haven't improved on it. 
1,600 years, we really haven't improved on this definition. They did a good job of setting the boundaries. Because again, I say we've got to set these boundaries knowing what's, what's at stake. Knowing how easy it is to stumble into faulty thoughts and look up one day and realize, I've created a Jesus who doesn't exist. I've created a Christ who doesn't come from the scriptures, but instead from my mind. So our primary responsibility is that, to come to the scriptures, to consider Jesus, to constantly be working to bring our thoughts in line with what God has revealed here in his word. This is eternal life, you know, isn't that what Jesus said? John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true and living God, and your son, Christ Jesus, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God, and it's not the enjoyment of eternal life here and now, knowing more and more and more of this true God and Christ Jesus, whom he has sent. Not only is he the path to eternal life, not only is the only gate to eternal life, he is the end of eternal life. He is the goal. He is the telos of eternal life to see and know Christ Jesus whom you have sent. And, and as I have conversations with people, people within this church, people outside of this church, people who, who truly love God and trust Christ Jesus as Lord and, and trust that this is the word of God, oftentimes what I'll find is we have a very fundamentally different way of understanding what we're doing with this book. I'm trying to know God. I'm not trying to learn facts. I'm not trying to get a bunch of tips for a happy life. I'm coming to this word and trusting that in it, I will see and know God and Christ Jesus whom he has sent. And so of course, that's our primary responsibility, constantly coming to the word and reforming our thoughts as the world and sin and Satan and our own weakness constantly works to deform those thoughts. We're coming to the word and constantly asking God to reform them and reshape them to give us a mind like Christ. But there is one test that I've found is, is I've considered this Advent season. I've thought about what the incarnation is. There is one very clear sign that you have probably erred in your thoughts about who is the Christ? What does it mean for him to be fully God and fully man? And that is, if the Christ Jesus whom you worship is not able to save you from your sins, then he's not the Christ of Scripture. So the question that I ask, there's a couple of questions that I kind of asked in advance last week. One of those was, why must our Redeemer be fully man? Why is that necessary? Now, of course, the immediate answer is probably something like it wasn't necessary for us to have a redeemer at all. God didn't owe us anything. As a matter of fact, it wasn't necessary for God to create a world. And it was certainly less necessary for the God whom created the world to then come along and redeem a people who have sinned and rebelled against him. But the question comes after that. The question comes after he has determined after this, God has determined that he would create. And after he had ordained that he would save men who had fallen into sin in that creation. After he determined that for the sake of my own glory, I will redeem fallen man. Then the question becomes, why must that redeemer, why must the one who has come to save us from our sin, why must he be fully man? 
And so to try and answer that question, we come to what really has over the last probably two or three years, what really has very quickly become probably my favorite book in the entirety of the New Testament. I say that fully realizing that as soon as we jump right back into Ephesians, I'm going to look at you and say, psych, this is actually my favorite. I find myself in love with whatever passage he brings me to, but I, I have. As we have talked about this, this access that is granted to us into the very holy of holies, through the curtain that is Jesus' flesh, as we talk about everything that was accomplished in Christ Jesus for our behalf, and we see those pictures drawing us from the Old Testament all the way into the New, it really is just... It's a beautiful thing. And, and so, as you see by the length of the text that we're trying to tackle on a normal Sunday morning, what do we tackle? One verse at best, sometimes only a word. But as, as you see us trying to tackle all this text together, it's a healthy reminder that what we do on Sunday morning, what we do on this Lord's Day, as we come together and we come to this word, we're not just trying to reach in there and just pluck out an answer just to a question. So, so maybe I do wrong by asking you a question. That's part of why I don't give you a bulletin. I don't want you just focused on, okay, give me the answer to these three things, but it is helpful to have some idea, where's this dude headed? So I asked the question to give you some concept of what's he trying to show us? So if we get to the end of this and you realize I don't think I know the answer, it gives you opportunity to come to me and say, did you see something that I didn't see there? Or did you mean to express something that maybe you didn't adequately, adequately express? But we've got to understand that this isn't, this isn't a dictionary. This isn't an encyclopedia. We don't just come here and nice and tidy and clean, find the answers to our questions. And that's what makes the study of scripture so difficult for some. We like things to be wrapped up in nice, clean packages. And we like to get to the end of our study and feel like we've accomplished something. We, we've finished something. We've, we've solved a puzzle and there's, there's no extra pieces left. And there's no pieces left out. But that's not the nature of what we're doing. And, and so I bring you to this text telling you, I think that there's a nugget out here. I think that there's, a, there's at least part of an answer to why our Redeemer must be fully man. But I tell you that that nugget is surrounded by vast fields of treasure. And we would be utter fools to go after that nugget and leave everything else laying on the ground. And, and so we're going to work through this. And what's going to happen for some of you is the question that I have just posed that isn't even why God's got you here. He, he's got something else in here that he's going to reveal to you about himself and about Christ Jesus, whom he has sent. And so the question is not going to really mean anything to you this morning. It's something else that he's going to show you. And I don't dare box him in like that. Again, that's, that's why I, I think we just, we just come to this word feeling, trusting we're going to meet with God and he's going to do his work. And again, it's so incredibly difficult for us in our flesh. We want three points, something nice and clean and tidy we can hang our hat on, something we can tell our parents we learned in the, in the, in the lesson, in the sermon, and then that's that. It's incredibly more difficult to just sit in the presence of God and hear his voice. To behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, his son, and to be changed. But that's what I hope for us to do. So again, we're here in this book of Hebrews, and it's... Unlike the book of Ephesians, there's a lot of things we don't know about Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know exactly who he wrote it to. We don't know exactly the circumstances under which it was written. It, it doesn't read like a letter. It reads more like a sermon. 
Maybe even a homily, like a sermon that was passed around that people would would read and recite in in the hearing of the church. And and as I indicated earlier, there are so many allusions to the Old Testament. There, there, There are so many pictures and so many references that would have only made sense if you had some understanding of the redemptive story of the Old Testament. It's, it's helpful if you were going to study. If today you said, I'm going to, in my personal time, in my private study, I'm going to tackle the book of Hebrews. I might tell you it would be helpful for you to go and read the book of Leviticus first. Have some understanding of the Old Testament temple and priestly and sacrificial system. Because what you find here is the substance that all those shadows and all those signs and all those pictures point to. You realize what it was that they were leading people to. You realize how a man like Simeon and a woman like Anna could come into the temple with great expectation, see the Christ child, and rejoice. That's what God was doing. And so because of that, though, there's, there's great difficulty because we didn't grow up in that, in that culture. We, we didn't grow up with all these symbols and signs. We've never slaughtered a lamb for the, the sins of our family. We have never gone to the temple and asked the priest to go and sprinkle blood for the cleansing of our sins. We're not, we're not always and immediately familiar with these signs. And so it takes a little bit more work in order for us to grasp what's happening here. But it's worth it. What we find in this book is you get to the fifth chapter, the end of the fifth chapter and the beginning of the sixth, is you get these exhortations from the author. He's saying, look, I want you to be skilled in the word. Come on, guys, let's move off of the milk and onto the meat. Don't, don't, quit, don't keep going back to these elementary doctrines. Let's, let's press on. Let's press on to maturity. And his reason isn't just, I want the church to be robust in their theology. I want the church to have this this strong biblical theology that's able to see what the true Lamb of God actually is, what the temple actually represents, what the curtain really points towards. It, It isn't just about intellectual curiosity. It isn't just about being able to win some sort of debate. It's very, very practical. The concerns of the book of Hebrews, I told you I don't know the context in which it's been written, but there's a whole lot of indicators there that it's written to Jewish people whom face real persecution. They, they, they face the loss of their wealth, the loss of all their, the plundering of their goods. Many of them have been arrested, meeting together, not in some glorious temple, oftentimes not even in a synagogue, but gathered together in homes and in caves and, and in secret places. People who have, who are no longer going and seeing the, the ornate and, and over-the-top nature of temple worship. And now there's, there's something a whole lot more simple as they, they gather together in smaller and smaller groups. And so because of this and the persecution that comes, apparently these Hebrew believers, these Jewish believers, they're in danger of turning back to the old ways. They're in danger of repudiating their confession of, of Christ and pulling up short. Not just in order to avoid the persecution and the suffering that lay ahead, but because of the beauty of what they saw behind. Isn't that our nature? We come forward to what is new and what is greater and what is promised, and yet when things get hard, we start romanticizing what lay behind. Wasn't that what the Israelites did in the wilderness? Things were so good in Egypt. We had food every day. And so... The concern of the author of Hebrews seems to be very clearly, I don't want you to turn back. He says things like, 
Do not neglect this great salvation. Strive to enter into the Sabbath rest which God has promised. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's really the theme of Hebrews. Look to Jesus. Isn't that what we read at the end of our text this morning? The first verse in chapter 3. Consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession. Is that not the key to the Christian life? Is that not the key to enduring in the face of suffering? It's considering Jesus. Looking to Christ. But again, because of our sin, because of Satan, because of our own weakness in the world around us. We find ourselves so often not knowing what are we supposed to be considering. Consider which Jesus. And what do we consider about him? And so the author of Hebrews does a fantastic job of showing these people what they're meant to consider. What you'll find in the book of Hebrews is some of the most precious, some of the really the most robust portrait of Christ Jesus as Lord that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. You want to know what kind of things you should be considering about Jesus? You want to have a clear picture of who this Christ is? Read through the book of Hebrews, and we see here, in, in the very beginning, in the first chapter, he tells us that he's the full revelation of God, greater than all the prophets who have come before him combined. We see that he's greater than the angels. For the angels, they were messengers, but Christ Jesus, he's the Son of God. He's the very radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's greater than Moses. Moses was faithful in the house of God like a servant, but Christ Jesus as a son. He's the great high priest. Not like Aaron, not like the Levitical priest, but like Melchizedek from the tribe of Judah, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. That one who received tithes from Father Abraham and blessed Father Abraham, a clear sign that he was the greater. And if Levi was in the loins of Abraham, there giving tithes to Melchizedek and receiving the blessing back from Melchizedek, then, purely, then clearly this is a higher priest, a greater priest, the priesthood that will endure forever. He's the great high priest. He's the mediator of a better covenant with better promises, with a better once and for all sacrifice in his blood. He's not like the other priests that have to do their work standing up because there's always more to do. And he doesn't have to day by day continue to offer these sacrifices because so sufficient was this once and for all sacrifice, which is Christ. And so sufficient was his work that he sits down when he's done. And no longer does he go in and just represent us before God, but that through him we have access into the very throne room of God. The curtain has been torn. We come now through his flesh. Those who are once far off, he is now brought near. He's greater. That's the story of the book of Hebrews. It's the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And we had one of our sweet senior adult ladies that passed away. And towards the end of her life, I asked her, what, what do you want me to preach at your funeral? You don't always get that opportunity. What do you want me to preach at your funeral? And she said, I want you to pick something from the book of Hebrews. And I know you don't like to title your sermons, but you're going to title mine. And it's going to be called Jesus is greater. Greater than what? Greater than everything. Everything that came before. Jesus is greater. And so we come to this morning's text with all of that. We come to verse 5. 
And it begins with the word for. I love these connecting words. They tell us that what we're about to read ties us back to the stuff that has just come before. And what you find, I probably should have just read from the first verse, but what you find in the four verses that come before this, again, is this call not to neglect this great salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And it talks about the fact that this salvation, it has been proclaimed by the Lord himself. It's been attested to by faithful witnesses. It's been affirmed by God through signs and wonders and the gifts of his Holy Spirit. In short, what he's saying is, you've got no excuse. And if God would hold men accountable for neglecting the message that he had once given through his angels, how much more? How much more will he judge those who have rejected this great salvation that has been so clearly attested? We will not escape God's wrath if we neglect this salvation. So the call here, again, is one of don't stop short. In fact, they use the word here. The author uses the word of, of drifting away. He says, hold on, pay close attention, and don't drift away. Set your anchor. You're where you want to be. But you know the thing about boats, you put a boat out in the water, you don't have to do anything to move them away. The tide just takes him. The current just takes him. And so the fear here isn't that you're going to necessarily even turn and actively run away from Christ. It's that you're going to find your life drifting and moving, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. So he's saying, press on, persevere, for, because. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So he's saying that there is a world to come. Not just this world that is around us. This is not all that will exist. But there is a world to come. A new heavens and a new earth. As I read in one man's commentary this week, he called it a land of pure delight. That there is a, there's a world to come. And it wasn't angels who have been given administration over that world. We look around us and there's a very real sense in which angels are working and moving and controlling by the hand of God in this world. I want you to think about the one who has been called the prince of this age, the, the king of this time. Is he not a fallen angel? Isn't it Satan himself and his demons? And so we find ourselves in the here and now very much watching the working and the moving and the controlling of angels. He says in the world to come, it will not be them. Well, then who do he give it to? Who is it that he has given this subjection of the world to come? Well, back up in chapter 1, verse 8, it says that it's only of the Son that he has said, Your throne, O God, speaking of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. As we get down to verse 9, he tells us exactly who he's talking about. He says in verse 9, namely, Jesus. But before he gets to Jesus, before he takes us there, he makes some general statements about manhood, or excuse me, about mankind. He doesn't just talk about the man, Christ Jesus. He takes us back to Psalm chapter 8, to the 8th Psalm, and he talks about what God's design was for man. Now, we don't know where between verse 4 and verse 9 the shift happens. When does he stop talking about all of humanity and start talking specifically about Christ Jesus? Is, is he talking about humanity and always behind it is the man, Jesus Christ? Or is there some line drawn in the sand where directly he moves? No longer am I talking about all of mankind. Now I'm just talking about Jesus. 
I'll leave that up to you to consider. I tend to believe that the whole of what he's talking about here is humanity in general with an eye to Christ Jesus, the second Adam, the true man. So he says, verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. Again, this is Psalm 8 that he refers to, and he knows it's, well, number one, it's the, the Bible did not have the chapter and the verses the way that we consider them today. But I, I appreciate the way men in Scripture often talk about Scripture. So often you find these men who can tell you chapter and verse. They can tell you the address, but they completely miss the point of what's been taught. He says, I want you to know this is the word of God, the, the breathed out word, the life giving word of God. So he says it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? So he's pointing us back to Psalm 8, which is really a meditation on Genesis 1, 26. Who, who, who is man that you would consider him? Who is the son of man that you would think about him? Verse 7, for you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Isn't that what it says? Look back to Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in his image. He created them man and female. He created him and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Who is man that you would think about us like this? Man is but a worm. Who is man that you would consider us, that you would place us in a position like this, putting everything in subjection under our feet? And, and surely we do well at this moment to hit pause and recognize just the insanity of the world in which we live, where this secular humanity seeks to make man as the center of the universe, all the while denying that man is anything other than just another animal. You've got the God of the universe saying, no, 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 you are not like the other animals. I've made you in my image to bear my glory, to subdue and have dominion over the animals and over everything else, and therein is where you find your exaltation. Therein is where you find the value of human life. But the world completely removes that thought. They do everything they can to deny that truth, while at the same time trying to plug man in at the center of the universe, even above and against God. And isn't that the wiles of the devil? God comes and makes this glorious promise to the people, to Adam and Eve there in the garden. And what does the devil say? He never gives you nothing good. He's selfish and he's worried that you're going to be like him. It's the lie of the devil. So he says, second half of verse 8, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. This is the lordship entrusted to man. It's a, it's, it's a mediated sovereignty. We don't trump God. We have no power, no authority, no dominion in and of ourselves. But this is the place where God has put man, even when all is said and done over the angels. Does not the scripture say that we will judge even the angels? But he's saying, who are we that you would consider us 
that you would place us in this position, that you would give us this authority and this dominion and place all things, leaving nothing outside subjection to man. Now, now again, we do well to hit pause at every point and remember that God was under no obligation. There, there, was, there was nothing necessary about this. It wasn't as though God couldn't manage his creation and he thought, you know, I need, need a bunch of little minions that can do this work for me. It wasn't as though there was something in his nature that forced this to be true. It was according to nothing other than the good pleasure of his will. When's the last time you stopped and paused and were overwhelmed like the psalmist at this? God, who is man that you're mindful of him? Who are we that you would give us this honor? That you would exalt man like this? Do you begin to see a little bit of why... The author of Hebrews calls this such a great salvation. For so many, we have this picture of salvation. It's nothing other than God just erasing the blackboard with all your tally marks on it, all your demerits. He's wiping the slate clean. He's bringing you back to neutral. He's restoring you to some previous innocent state. He says, no, 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 no. God has destined man for something so much great, so much greater. But then he looks around him. These, these promises are true. We believe them because the scripture says it. But you'd have to be blind not to look around and go, it sure doesn't look like it. That's why he goes on to say, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Look around you. Look around you and consider how many things are way outside the control of man. Weather and sickness and storms and famine. Animals, the animals we were meant to subdue, but most of all, disease and death. All these things that are meant to be brought under subjugation of man and all these things that man was meant to have dominion over, it's like they're all rebelling against us. It's like they've all turned against us and then when all is said and done, we close our eyes and die. This week, if you work through the Advent study that Miss Heidi puts out with your family, I don't remember if it was Monday or Tuesday maybe, we were reading through Isaiah 11, and you see this picture of the, the lion laying down with the lamb and a little baby putting his hand over the adder's den, and you, you, you see this picture that I don't see when I look around me. I look around me and I see chaos. I look around me and I see man constantly trying to regain some semblance of control. Think, think about all that you see, all the insanity that you see from the government down to the ordinary man on the street, constantly trying to convince himself that he's in control, that he has dominion. You can't even subdue your own heart. You can't stop a storm and you can't stop death. So clearly we look around and we see we don't yet see everything in subjection under him. And we know the reason for this. Because of the fall of man. This all began right there in the garden with Adam. And surely King David, as he wrote Psalm 8, looked around him and said, and I'm not even the king I'm meant to be. That there was never a man that came along and lived up to what God had called him to be, reflecting his image to the ends of the earth, taking that glory, that mediated glory that had been given to him from God and carrying it to the uttermost ends of the world. Living in obedience to God and bringing him honor and glory that, no, instead what man has done is we have rebelled with the serpent and the seed of the serpent. 
And in doing that, what we have done is we have abdicated our place. We've let go of our proper place. We have, we have released this destiny for which God has called us. And so we look around and no, we don't see man in control of all things. We don't see man ruling over this world as God has promised. And worse than that, we very quickly realize and in order to attain to that place, man doesn't have the ability. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to recapture that place. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to regain that dominion and that authority. It's a dire situation. It might look as though God's promises have failed. But then he goes on. But we see him. I want you to see this. We don't yet see the world in subjection, everything to man. But we do see him. If you read from the NASB, that word do is in there. The ESB just says, but we see him. And the ESB says, but we do see him. It's a contrast. You don't see the world in subjection and everything under the feet of man, but you do see Christ. But you do see Jesus. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we do see Jesus. Quit looking around you and look to Christ. Quit worrying about your lying eyes and look to Christ because we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He who by nature is greater than the angels. In the first chapter, verse 6, it says, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The one whom angels worship, the one whom angels serve, the one whom angels adore. He for a little while was made lower than the angels. Like the rest of mankind. We do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We see Jesus. We see Christ who for a little while stepped down a little lower than the angels in weakness, in the ability to die, being veiled in human flesh. We see Christ Jesus taking upon himself the fullness of humanity so that in weakness and in suffering and in death, he may restore this world that we have soiled. All the chaos that we brought, all the sin and decay and disease, he stepped down a little lower than the angels in the middle of this world. And what we read is that it's precisely because of this condescension. It's precisely because of his stepping down that he is crowned with glory and honor. That's what he says. We do see him. We don't feel like kings and the world doesn't look like it's in subjection to us. It doesn't look like we have any authority, even over our own hearts. But we see Christ and we see him crowned with honor and glory specifically because he's condescended. Again, going back to the first chapter, they reference, the author reference, references Psalm 110. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Jesus Christ, we look to him because today he does reign. He came to this reign. He came to this exaltation specifically through his humiliation. Isn't that what Paul says to the Philippians? Philippians 2 verse 5. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 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 God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every other name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How in the world does humiliation lead to exaltation? How does this, how does this work? Is, is it that Jesus, is you've got to pay your dues? Is that what it is? You've got to go through boot camp. You've got to go through hazing. You've got to go through initiation. And then exaltation comes. Is it just some arbitrary standard that God has set? In what way is it through humiliation that Jesus finds himself in exaltation? Well, it's precisely because of what he came to accomplish by that humiliation. What's the purpose? Why did God become man? He says, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by grace, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's the fact that he didn't taste death just for himself, that in that tasting death, he brought with him all those that were his. Isn't that what I read earlier, that he gave his life as a ransom for many? He owed God no debt, no debt of death, no debt of wrath. And yet in coming, he tasted death for the sake of all his children, paying God what was due. We're reminded that only man can pay the debt that man owes God. And so the scripture is telling us here that he tasted death on behalf of those that owed God a tremendous debt. He tasted death on behalf of his children so that you and I need not taste a death like his. So that in a very real way that just as in the garden, as you find in the book of, of Romans, Romans 5, that just in the garden, in a very real way, we were there with Adam. So that Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's rebellion is our rebellion. Adam's guilt is our guilt. In just the same way, Christ Jesus' righteousness is our righteousness. We were there with him in the garden. We were there with him at Calvary. We were there with him in the tomb. We were there with him when he rose again. And we are there with him as he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So that Christ Jesus truly is our champion and our savior and our captain. And in that, he is exalted. In that, he is glorified. Because he didn't just charge straight into the mouth of death. He didn't just crush the teeth of the lion. He took us with him when he did it. That that was the purpose and the humiliation, that he would taste death for many. So as he comes out the other side of death, having conquered over death, he comes out the other side, not just holding his own life in his hand, but holding ours, holding our life and eternal blessing in his hand. That's why in verse 10 it says that he does this, bringing many sons to glory. Look at man and you don't yet see the glory. You don't yet see the crown. You don't yet see the authority. You don't yet see the dominion. But look to Christ. You see him crowned with honor and glory. And you recognize that he came. He received that crown and that honor and that glory. Not just in and of himself, but you in him. He's our champion. He's our founder, as the text will say. So that the Lagos... The one who had infinite glory. You realize this. The Son of God didn't lack glory. The Son of God was an absent glory. He was infinite. You cannot add glory to infinite glory. The one who had no lack and he had no shortage of glory. Taking upon himself the fullness of humanity. Making himself a little lower for a time than the angels. That he might rise us up with him. That he might die in our stead so that as he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. What does Paul say? We're seated there too. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Seated with him today. 
So that what we see when we look to heaven now, what we look, see when we look to heaven and we see the God man there seated at the right hand, we see number one, that God has kept his promise. God's promise was that a man would rule and reign, that a man would sit upon the throne forever. So we look at the one who has taken upon himself the fullness of humanity. We look to heaven and we say, see the one seated at the right hand of the father. He's one of us. God has kept his promise, but it's more than this. We don't just look and say, see our representative, see a man seated at the right hand of the father. We look and say, see us seated there with him. See the way that he who has descended has ascended and took us back to the father with him. Isn't that what he came to do? To bring us to the father so that everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us, having taken us to himself. All that he did, it's credited as if we had done it. That's why he's called in verse 10, the founder of our salvation. That, that word that's used there for founder, it's not a very common word. I think, I think I found it four times used in the New Testament. One of them here in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12 too, it says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. It, it means something like founder or author, but it also has the concept of somebody who goes, behind, goes before to make a way for others, like a, like a pathfinder. Like somebody who breaks through a hole in the side of a cave in order to lead others with him. We're, we're not going to finish the whole of this text this morning, as is obvious. And so we're going to come back tonight. And I do hope you will come back tonight because there's much more here. But what you'll find is, is that he comes and he doesn't help the angels, but he helps men. And that word for help is one of taking them by the hand and leading them along. So Jesus didn't just come to accomplish something for the sake of his own glory. He came to take us by the hand. He came to make a way. He came as a pathfinder. He came as a trailblazer. He came as a pioneer to bring us with him. That's what it means when he says that he's the founder of our salvation. Because the one who goes before came expressly for the purpose of leading others with him. But, it, but it's not just some distant relationship. We, we have plenty of trailblazers. We have plenty of heroes that have gone before us and made a way where there wasn't previously a way. Even plenty of men who might come to you in, in your desperation, in your lostness, who might come to you and take you by the hand and lead you all the way to the promise. That's all possible without there being any level of intimacy. That's all possible without there being any level of communion. But that's not where this one is. It says in verse 11, Christ, the sanctifier, has sanctified us. And we belong to God just as he does. Second half of 11, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, behold, I and the children you have given me. So that this, this one who has come from the Father, this one who has come to make us holy, this one who has come to blaze the trail, this one who has come to help us by taking us by the hand and leading us into glory, he calls us brother. Not ashamed to call us brother because he has made us holy. He has sanctified us. That this isn't some, this isn't some business arrangement. This isn't some far off relationship, but it's, it's near as brothers and children and a family. I've got to move quick now. Verse Going back to verse 10, though, it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He says it was fitting. Now, everything that God does is good. Everything that God, he cannot do 
other than that which is good. Not just what is good, but what is utterly best. God has not the capacity to do anything less than that which is glorious and perfect and best. And in order to, I think, make sure that we don't fall into some faulty lines of thinking, I think that's why the author of Hebrews says it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Those of you that have been here with us on Wednesday nights as we work through the Psalms, I've made it clear to you that I think every time we come to sacred scripture and we see the author referring to God by some specific trait or some specific name or some specific title. There's a purpose for that. He, he doesn't just reach into the random grab, grab bag of ways I can describe God and slap it on the paper. There's a reason here. And he's saying here that this is for whom and by whom all things existed. The sovereign God of the universe who created and owns and sustains everything that is, making clear he wasn't limited in his options here. There was no external limitation for God's working in redemption. Anything, therefore, that made it, made it necessary for Christ Jesus to become man, it must have been found in God himself. That's why he says it was fitting. This word for fitting, it means proper or, or beautiful. Or The King James Version says that it became him. It was becoming of God that he redeemed us in this way. It was in accordance with the glory and the nature of God that he would work in this way. So you, you think about who God is and you think about the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God. And at the same time, you think about the holiness of God and the justice of God and the righteousness of God. You think about the nature of God and you say, given the nature of who God is, this was the only way. This was the fitting way. This was the way that was befitting of his nature and his glory. This thing which he has done. Sending his son to take upon himself flesh. Sending his son to welcome to himself many brothers. Sending his son a little lower than the angels to trailblaze and to poke the hole and to grab us by the hand and to lead us with him into glory. It was fitting. Not only was it fitting for him to do all of this, but that he would make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now men have had all kinds of difficulty with that particular phrase that he who is our redeemer would need to be made perfect. Now we know that Jesus is sinless and without blemish. The author of Hebrews knows this as well. Over and over again, he refers to him as holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners. In the fourth chapter, he's gonna say that our high priest is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he's been tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. So we see this word here for perfected. We know it can't be anything of, of of moral quality. It can't be anything with regards to, to shortcoming or sin or rebellion or even a faulty attitude or disposition towards God. But that, that, word for, that word for perfected there, it has as its root the word telos. You're familiar with that word by now. Telos means the, means the end or the, the fulfillment. It, it was fitting, therefore, that this one whom he sent that our redeemer and the, the perfecter of our, or the author of our salvation, that he be the fulfillment of everything man was meant to be. The end for which God had created humanity to be. Upholding righteousness and, and, and succeeding at every place along the way where Adam had failed. It was fitting that he become perfect like this. That he learns, as he says in verse 13, what it means to trust in the Father. He learns what it means to walk in faith in the middle of a world filled with suffering and chaos and death. As a matter of fact, the author uses this same word in Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, 8 says that although he was a son, he learned obedience 
through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He didn't learn obedience as in he didn't know what obedience meant. He didn't learn obedience as in he didn't know what the Father commanded. He learned it experientially. He learned it in the face of suffering. He learned what it meant to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit at all points and at all times being what God had designed for man to be. Succeeding in every place where Adam had failed so that he then could be our right representative. He, tonight we will come back and talk about what it means for him to be fitted as the appropriate high priest. He had to have walked through this so that he could be one like us. He could be a suitable representative so that he could then take us to glory. He said it was fitting. It was in accordance with God's nature. There was no other way but to the one whom the angels worship, the one for whom and through whom and by whom all things exist, that he would be for a time a little lower than the angels, that he would become like one of us fully and in every way, that he would learn obedience he would be the fulfillment of all that man was meant to be as he walks through suffering, even and up to the point of death. This was fitting. It was all in accordance with the nature and the glory of God. There was simply no other way for man to be reconciled. Once God had determined that man was going to be reconciled, once God had made the promise that man would rule, that man would reign, that man would judge even the angels, there was no other way than this, that the Son of God would step down, that he would condescend, that he would suffer, that he would die. So the answer is, as you look around us at all the chaos, as you look around us at all the anarchy, as you look around us at all things that don't yet seem to be in subjection, not to us, and even at times not to Jesus Christ, we look to him. We consider what he has done. We believe the promises that God has for us in terms of what he has accomplished. And we press on. That's not all the author of Hebrews has to say. That's not even all of this morning's text. So we'll come back to this this evening, and I really do hope you'll come and hear what the, rest, the rest of what he has to say. Father, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that you didn't leave us where you found us. We thank you that for the sake of your own name and for the sake of your glory, that you decreed before the foundation of the world that you would send your son and that your son willingly came that by the power of the Holy Spirit he would walk as our faithful representative as our champion as our captain as our trailblazer that he would succeed at every point along the way where man had failed that he would walk through suffering and absolute obedience and faithfulness that he would lay down his life no one took it from him he laid it down that he could then take it back up and ascend to your right hand and that we were there with him that we are now in him, seated in heavenly places. We thank you for this promise. We pray this Advent season that you help us to as much as man is able to reckon this, to comprehend it, and then to walk in light of it. God, we love you, trust you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.